I had uh, one more announcement that I forgot to make during the announcements, and that is um, Drury is hosting the like the finals for the debates from all across the country or something, and and um, I think it's a, a big deal thing. And I got a phone call from uh, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. They have a couple there, the mom and a the daughter. They're coming out here. They're looking for some place to stay while they're out for the debate. Um, they'll give a car and their flight. They just need some place to lay their head at night. And so that's May 23rd through 28th. So you might be interested in opening up your home for them. I also got an email from Calvary Chapel in Hawaii, uh, some families from there that are coming out for this thing. And so um, if you're interested in helping out, opening up your home, just let me know and I'll get that information to them. Um, so that's coming up May 23rd through 28th. With those announcements... Um, Turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We are in chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11 today. If you need a Bible, Stu's up front. He's got Bibles in his hand. He'll bring them right to your seat so you can follow along. Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 through 11 today. Apostle Paul's writing here. Starting in verse 7, he says, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The title of my study this morning is What's Love Got to Do With It? Dot, 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 everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in your word, to know, Lord, that you are here in our midst desiring to speak to our hearts. And so we thank you for this time. We thank you for this opportunity to be together, Lord, in this place, this facility you've provided for us, that we could come in outside from the world and all that's going on in this world and find our, our refuge, find the strength and to be in this time together. We pray, Lord, that we'd have ears to hear what your, church, what your, your spirit says to the church this morning, that you'd just touch our hearts through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The comic strip, Charlie Brown comic strip, where uh, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown. And Lucy says to Charlie, you know what? I don't understand. I don't understand love. And Charlie says, well, who does? Well, Lucy says, explain love to me, Charlie Brown. To which he says, you can't explain love. I can recommend a book or a poem or a painting, but I can't explain love. Well, Lucy's persistent and says, try, Charlie Brown, try. Charlie says, well, let's see. Let's say I see this beautiful, cute little girl walk by. Well, Lucy interrupts. Why does she have to be cute, huh? Well, why can't someone fall in love with someone with freckles and a big nose? Explain that, Charlie. Well, Charlie says, well, maybe you're right. So let's just say I see this girl walk by with this great big nose. Lucy interrupts again. I didn't say great big nose. And the last caption reads, Charlie saying, you not only can't explain love, you can't even talk about it. Well, we're going to try this morning. Because of all the, the Christian characteristics we can and should possess, love should be there first and foremost. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the Apostle Paul says, And now abideth faith, 
hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And in that, in that same chapter, the Paul is extremely clear that whatever we do in this life as believers, if love is not our motive, then we're just missing out. It avails nothing. And even further, when we look at the fruit of the Spirit that we as believers should be experiencing in our life, love is at the top of the list. It's first. And Paul here, he loved this Philippian church. So much so that this letter he's writing to them is one of, it's considered one of the prison epistles. When he wrote this letter, he was under house arrest in the city of Rome. It put under arrest for preaching Christ. In fact, he wrote uh, three other epistles at the same time, Ephesians, Philemon, and Colossians. So here's this letter to the Philippians. And from the first time he met them, he was very close with these believers. In fact, of all the recorded letters that Paul had written, this is the most personal, the most intimate letter that he wrote to any particular church. And you just kind of catch this great display of emotion and affection in verse 7 when he says, It is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. And I think, you know, for many of us, you know, for honest, we would say, It's right for me to think of you because you just get on my nerves. You really bug me. And I'm just thinking about you all the time. No, Paul says, Listen, I have you in my heart. See, it began about 10 years previously from this point that Paul, while traveling on his second missionary journey, entered into Europe and he brought the gospel there to Philippi. He came to the city, met a lady named Lydia who, who received the gospel. She was born again and the church was started. It began to grow. Now it's been 10 years and Paul really was not able to go back and spend a lot of time with the believers, and, but they, they still remain close to him in, in, in their hearts. Paul had this inseparable bond with the believers there in Philippi. But he tells them so, again in verse 7, Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers with me of grace. So even though Paul was this great distance away in Rome, in prison, the believers in Philippi took, partook of Paul's suffering. We know this by the fact that they sent Paul money. They helped him out during his time of imprisonment thus sharing God's gracious blessings on his ministry. And the same thing is true for us. When we support those missionaries, when we support, you know, Victory Mission, the Pregnancy Care Center, when we support Harvest Crusades here as a church, at a church, man, we get the blessings of all that going to our account, all those lives that were saved at the Harvest Crusade. Man, we're a part of that because we support that ministry. We become a part of the ministry. That's what Paul is saying here. He's feeling very close with these believers. And we see this mutual affection that they had for each other. Paul would pray for them and they would pray for Paul. Now, what is it that Paul is praying for them for? I would say that it's something that most people never pray for, for love. I mean, we, we pray for finances, we pray for healings, we pray for all these things. Paul is praying for love. And yet, what do most people need more than anything else? What do churches need? What do marriages need? What do friendships need more than anything else? They need love, authentic, genuine love. People are starved for love, especially with the byproduct of so many broken hearts today. And yet, when was the last time that you prayed for love? Not prayed that somebody would love us, but that we would be so full of God's love that, that, that others would experience the love that we have for them. That's what Paul is praying for with these believers. Look at verses 8 and 9. This is really going to be our focus this morning. Verse 8 says, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection or the love of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound still more 
and more in knowledge and all discernment. Notice that, that little phrase there in verse 9, and this I pray. In other words, Paul is saying, my one request, my one prayer that I have before God, here is this, it's love. That your love may abound. That word for love here, it's a familiar word that we've looked at many times. It, it, it's a word agape. You know, it's a Greek word. It refers to the highest level of love. It's a biblical love. It's, it's a sacrificial kind of love. It's God's love towards us. Now, the rest of these verses that follow are there simply to develop the one point Paul wants to make, and that is of love. Why? Because love is the hallmark of the Christian faith, is it not? Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this shall all men know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. It's what marks us different than the world. I like what D.L. Moody used to say, A man may be a good doctor and not love his patients. A man may be a good lawyer and not love his clients. One can be a great geologist and not love rocks, but no one can be a good Christian without love. And so we look at this love this morning. And we're going to look at four specific things, if you're taking notes, that Paul is praying for concerning love. Number one on the list, Paul prays for a plentiful love. Praying for a plentiful love. Look at verse 9 again. He prays that our love, that your love may abound still more and more. Stop there for a moment. The word abound could also be translated super abound. That's what it means, literally. It means to surpass a fixed mark a measuring line to overflow. In other words, our love ought to be growing. That we should be filled with the kind of love that reaches out to people different than we are. All kinds of people. Not just the kind of people that we like to hang out with, the kind of people that we like to associate with, the kind of, you know, that we get along with. All kinds of different people, different backgrounds, different cultures. Which really reflects the heart of God when you think about it. I mean, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So Paul could be saying here that I pray that your love for the world abounds, increases. But, but I don't, I, even though that's true, I don't, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think what Paul is saying is, is he's referring to the love that the church had for each other within the church. That your love for one another would abound. It's for one another. It's the same thought that Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, where he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. See, he's praying there that their love for each other would abound. Now, it's been said, to dwell above with the saints we love, oh, that'll be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. And sometimes it's easier to, to love people, you know, on the other side of the country. Oh, yeah, I love them. Oh, I miss them. Man, I love them. You know, than, than it is to love people right next to you. Sometimes it's easier. Sometimes we find it hard to love those even in our own home our neighborhood, our families, our own church. That's easier to love people from a distance. It's like what that great theologian, Linus, said to Charlie Brown. He says, I love the world, it's just the people I can't stand. You know, the Apostle John reminds us in 1 John 4.20 that if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? You can't tell me that you love God if you're hating someone. And you especially can't tell me you love God if you hate a Christian brother or sister. I mean, John would say, how can you say you love God whom you can't see when you don't love someone that you can see? Now, that was not the case for the early church. They were known for their love. In fact, 
the church historian uh, Tertullian once wrote that the Roman government were suspicious of the Christians and their gathering together and, and thought, you know, that in the first and second centuries that they'd been secretly subverting the government. And so the emperor sent spies in to check them out into the Christian assemblies. And then they came back to give their report. One report came back to the emperor that said something to the effect of these Christians are very strange people. They meet in an empty room and they talk about somebody named Jesus who they think is actually right there with them. They expect him to return at any time. And then he said, and my how they love him and my how they love one another. I like that. Wouldn't that be great if spies came into our church and said, you know, one thing I noticed about those people at Calvary Chapel, man, they love God. Man, they certainly do love one another. Yeah, that pastor's a little weird, okay, but, but, but man, he loves Jesus. See, that's what Paul is praying for, for them, this plentiful love, that the love might exceed the fixed mark, that it might superabound. Let's take a test in our minds right now. Does your love abound? Is it growing? Let's start with your spouse. Would you say your love for your wife or your love for your husband is plentiful, it's abundant, that it exceeds the fixed mark, that it's growing? Move on from there. What about, you know, your parents, your friends? And you can draw that circle outwards. Because if you take the time in that test and think about it, it's what Paul said to the Romans in Romans 5.5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So if that's true, if the love of God has been poured out in our hearts, that would mean that the people around us would always know the love that I have for them. They would never be lacking in the love for me. Because if God's love has been poured out in my heart, that means I have a tremendous capacity for love when we know how much God loves us. So number one, Paul prayed for a plentiful love. Number two, Paul prays for a perceptive love. Look at verse 9 once again. This time we'll go a little further. Paul says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Now, Paul's not really a cliche type of guy. He doesn't just thought some cliche about love. You know, love is a many splendid things. Love lifts us up where we belong. You know, all you need is love. Love, you know, all the songs that you know about. No, he's pretty specific. He says, I want your love to abound, but with certain parameters, that of knowledge and that of discernment. You know, our love is like a river. You know, it's meant to flow freely. But if that water doesn't have the banks on either side to keep it flowing straight in the right direction, it can really do some damage in a strong rain. I mean, I remember just a couple of weeks ago that that overflowed water, the damage that it could do, you know, when our basement was, you know, looked like Lake Springfield here at the church. You know, so we know what damage uncontrolled water can do when it overflows. It's boundaries. It's very destructive. That's what Paul is saying, these two things about the right kind of love, perceptive love. He says the right kind of love should have knowledge on one side of the bank and discernment on the other side. Knowledge first. That word for knowledge there is epignosis. It has nothing to do with pigs or noses. It means a, a, a full, complete, expert knowledge. So Paul is saying that, I pray that your love is an overflowing, abundant love, but it has the perimeter of one being filled with knowledge, that you would be an expert in the knowledge about how true love is supposed to work out, that you would know. In other words, biblical Christian love needs to be firmly anchored and rooted in the truth of God's Word. 
People have all sorts of sayings about love, but real love, God's love, biblical love, we clearly learn from God's word. That's where we get the knowledge of God's love from. For example, we learn of God's love when we read in, in Hebrews twelve six, for the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. So we know that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. In fact, it goes on in Hebrews 12, verse 11, that says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So then if if God's word tells us that the Lord disciplines us because of that love for us, we have to face that that discipline for our actions. And in so doing, it's going to produce some righteousness in our lives. Then shouldn't we as parents, Love our children in the same way in which the Lord loves us. Of course. Let me give you another example. A few years back, the American Medical Association told us that spanking our children is just not the proper form of discipline. Now, I don't think that they realized that in that one statement they were totally undermining the authority of the Word of God. But with that, they decided the proper thing to do is to teach us how to discipline our children without spanking. Reminds me of another TV special I saw years ago that was meant to show that spanking your child doesn't work. Whenever there's TV shows that they, they, what they have their view of a subject, they always want to show the other view of being so whacked, and that's what they did. They showed this mom angrily, just really upset, angrily, spanking her kid's bottom, only to have the kid turn around and smack the mom right back. And they said, well, see, spanking doesn't work. Well, of course it doesn't. Because what I know and experience of God's love through His Word, I know that's not the way that God disciplines. You see, in disciplining, God is never angry at us. When He disciplines us, neither should we, you know, He's never angry, neither should we be angry at our children when we discipline them. I mean, God is not going to go, man, I am so sick of you, Tom, behaving this way. That is it, and smack me into some other galaxy. doesn't react that way. Why? Because we know what His Word says. God's Word, God has always disciplined us in an absolute agape love. So if that's the way God loves us, with that knowledge of God's love and discipline, that's the way we should do it. That means I don't discipline out of anger. That means I don't scream at my child. I very calmly tell them what they did was wrong and tell them they have to be disciplined for it so they will remember never to do this again. Now, all bets are off when they become teenagers, but, but uh, no, <laughs> you that have teenagers, you understand this, don't you? I'm just kidding. But, but, but this is the way the Lord cares for us, and this is the way the Lord loves us. Should we not do the same with our own children? You look for repentance in their hearts, and then you apply the rod of correction on the seed of understanding. Afterwards, you, you pray with them, and you love on them. Never out of anger, never using your hand for correction. Your hands are for loving and holding. The Bible says a rod. You know, we used to use a wooden spoon. We went through a lot of wooden spoons when my kids were young. But let me say this. As consistent as you are in disciplining your kids in love, the consistent they will be in obeying you in love. Understand that? They'll be just as consistent in obeying you in love. But I've seen on the other hand, those that are in the camp that say, oh, no, we never spank our kids. Well, then how do you discipline them? Well, we say, you know, Billy, get over here right now. And if you don't get over here right now, I'm going to come over there. Billy, I'm giving you till three. One, two, three. If I have to come over there, it's going to be time out for you, Billy. Billy, do you hear what I'm saying? You know, and they're constantly running after little Billy. Now, think about this. What's more abusive? 
My little swat that stings are the parents' loud, obnoxious, never-ending tone as they scream at their kids insistently, Billy, behave! Listen, if I were a kid, I would much rather have that single swat. Okay, Mom, I won't do that again. Just, just stop with the, well, wah, 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 Give me the spanking. Give me the swat. Again, it's a big difference. We need to love the way God calls us to love with knowledge on how God loves us, knowledge from God's word. Paul is, is praying that your love is overflowing, abundant love, but it has the parameter, it has the banks of being filled with knowledge. Let me add to this. Today we see so much emphasis placed on the emotion of love, on the feeling of love, rather than the knowledge of love. How you feel rather than what you know. And that can be very dangerous as well. Because sometimes a person might say, well, well, I feel like I don't love my wife anymore. I feel like I love the girl that I work with. Or I feel like giving my child whatever he or she wants is the best way to show love for them. Or I feel like I should let anybody who's a Christian do whatever they want. I should never say anything or confront them, even though Matthew 18 says to do so. I just don't feel like I should do that. That's a very dangerous form of love because true love is not just sentimentality. It's not just uh, filled with emotion. Love has those banks. Those banks are boundaries found in God's Word. And when you violate God's Word, violate those boundaries, it's destructive. And it's not the love of God. There'll be those that say, oh, it just feels so right to be with this person even though he, he's not a believer, even though she's not a Christian. No. The Bible says to be not unequally yoked together in a relationship with a non-believer. But my heart tells me it's right. I, I love them. Let me tell you about your heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Don't believe your heart. Now, I've counseled many times those struggling in their marriage. And on more than one occasion, they'll tell me, oh, I just don't love him anymore. Or I have no feelings of love for her anymore. Listen, love that is based on the knowledge of God's word tells us that love is more than a feeling, more than an emotion. It is a verb. It's an action word. It simply means it doesn't matter what you feel. You're to love anyway. Don't, don't just wait around you know, for that feeling of love. Just do it. Just love. Just start doing loving things. I mean, think about 1 Corinthians 13. Paul is giving us the, the, the classic definition of love. He doesn't talk about the emotion of love. Rather, he talks about what love does. He says, love is patient, it's kind, it's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude, it does not demand its own way, it's not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wrong. Now, there are people that keep long records of everything anyone has ever done to them, and they're really ready to bring it up at a moment's notice. Oh, I remember you said this thing to me. When did I say that? Oh, it was 20 years ago. Really? 20 years ago? Listen, you need to let that go. It's time for you to forgive. Show that love one towards another. So our love should be perceptive. It should have the bank of knowledge. On the other side, it needs the bank of discernment. That word discernment here is moral perception or, or, or literally, more literally, sensitive moral perception. We might feel a certain way towards a person, but that doesn't give us the right to express that love any way that we feel. In other words, there are times that we may discern when you don't reach out and hug someone, if that makes sense. What do I mean by that? Well, shouldn't we always be loving and caring and, and never cast judgment on people? Shouldn't we always be willing to, to give someone a hug and embrace people? Well, well yes and no. 
We should be loving, but again, we need to apply what real love is in the situation. This is not the, the, the gooey, sentimental, mushy, warm-feeling love inside. Oh, I just accept everybody. Come on in. It doesn't matter what you believe, what's going on. Yeah, come on. We just love everybody. That's not necessary love at all. A love that doesn't stand for what is right is not love. Because if you really love someone, you're going to be willing to tell them the truth. You know, tell them the truth. You know, think about, you know, maybe you're going out with your buddies and you come to the door and you say, hey, man, I got this new outfit. What do you think? They say, man, that is ugly. Man, you need to change. I'm not going to go out with you. You know, you know, all right, thanks for being honest. You go change. If you don't care about that person, when they say, hey, look, I got a new outfit, what do you think? That's oh, fine. Let's go. You know, you don't care. See, love with discernment will speak the truth in love. Bible says in Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. See, the fact of the matter is, if you really care about someone, there's a, a time where you may refrain from embracing and refrain from even maybe meeting a need so they will know what the truth is. Because if we don't do that, we'll produce like what, what I described earlier, and I call it sloppy agape. Sloppy agape is where you just throw out anything and call it love. It's indiscriminate. It's like I just do whatever and call it love. Love, love, love. I think today we're so into loving everyone and not even understanding what that word means that we lost the sense of discernment between right and wrong. Let me give you an example of this. We've all seen those guys that they like to sit on the corners of the off-ramps of the freeways and they'll have a cardboard sign that says, we'll work for food, need money, you know, one of those type of things, and, and hungry. And I'm sure there have been times when you felt compassion in your heart for them, which you should, because we're believers, we want to help people. And you're a Christian. And when you see somebody in need, Christ's love compels us to want to help. Well, how would Christ love that man or that woman? Now, I've discovered a while back that not everyone that holds up those signs says that, that say they need help really needs the help. You know, they really, really want, they need to know the kind of love and help that Christ would give them. See, discernment, is needed. Years ago, and this is many years ago because I was still living in California, a friend of mine and I, we were out one evening and, and uh, it was kind of nine, ten o'clock at night and we were enjoying an In-N-Out burger in his car and, and before we drove home and, and uh, a guy came up to our, our door of the car and kind of knocked on the window. We rolled down the window and kind of help you and he yeah, my wife just had a baby and, and uh, we're needing some, some food for my baby and, and some diapers. We just have no food and, and some babies and all right, you know, so, you know, your first response is that, Got a new baby. You need food and, and diapers. We thought, you know, let's ask him some questions first. And we asked him, so, so you know, if it's a new baby, how come your, your wife isn't nursing? Well, uh, she's got a problem with, with nursing. She, she can't nurse the baby. Uh, and we started asking some more questions. We're going, oh, man, there's just so many holes in this story. So we said, all right, tell you what we'll do. We'll go across the street to the grocery store. We'll pick up some formula and some, some diapers for you. You can take home for your wife got all mad and cussed and walked away. And they're going, okay, you know, you don't want the money. But see, people, especially Christians, out of love and their understanding of love would just hand the guy a few dollars and want to help out. But that wouldn't have helped him because no doubt it would have been used for drug money or alcohol to harm him. Now, that's not to say that every person that walks up to you, you know, is like that. You know, I mean, there are those with legitimate needs and, and we, we should reach out to them. What I am saying is that I believe from time to time we are causing the prodigal not to come home. Let me explain that. In the scripture, we know the prodigal, the prodigal son, you know, he has no money. He's eating the pig slop. Why? Because he's run out of money. 
Now, thank God there wasn't some well-meaning Christian out there who said, hey, before you go running home to dad, here's a few bucks to keep you living in the pig slop, in the pig food. Because if that keeps on happening, he never comes home. And all you're doing is putting a band-aid on the problem. You're not getting to the heart of the problem. See, there needs to be a point in time where God-fearing and God's grace and love says, you know what, I'm not going to help you anymore. You're not going to help me? No, not until I see some changes. Not until I see you taking some steps in the right direction. Until I see something is different. See, that can be agape love. The unconditional, everlasting, never-ending love of God. But it takes discernment. Not sloppy agape. So you have knowledge and discernment as the banks of abundant love. You and I now become then God's instruments, His tools of love designed for tasks to love one another. That's Paul's prayer here. He goes on in verse 10, as a result of loving with knowledge and discernment, he says, in so doing, you may approve the things that are excellent. I like that. Proving things that, that are excellent. It's, a, it's the idea of like a, a carpenter square, you know. It's got the perfectly square, the, the, the little metal thing right there, and you, you line up to the piece of the wood, everything is perfectly square, and you know that it's right on. And, and so it's a standard. That square is a standard. That square is, is, is God's word. It's a standard. So we bring everything, the knowledge and the sermon, we bring that to the situation and we know what's right and we know what's straight. Proving those things that are excellent. Because again, it's not about our feelings. It's about the facts. This brings us to point number three. Paul prays for pure love. Again, at the end of verse 10, he says, that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ. Now, I like that word sincere. It comes from two Latin words, sin meaning without and seta meaning wax. So literally, Paul is praying that your love may be without wax. What? Now in the Greek, the word literally means tested by sunlight. So he's praying, I pray that your love may be tested by sunlight. Okay, that doesn't help us any either. So, so what is he saying? They, they sound a bit bizarre, but if you understand the culture, it helps us to understand the words. In ancient times, the biggest industry at that time was that of the pottery industry. And with that, you had both ends of the market. You had the, 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 the thick, the kind of unattractive type pottery, very inexpensive, your everyday use. Then you had your fine china, so to speak, the thinner, finer pottery that was much more beautiful in appearance and the way that it was made. And that, the finer stuff, like today, would have a bigger price tag on it. But the trouble with the thinner and, and the finer pottery, oftentimes during the firing process, it would develop little cracks, little flaws in it. So rather than remaking the whole piece, unscrupulous shop owners would fill the cracks with hard, dark wax and then sell it like new. And so you'd walk in, unsuspecting customers, oh, this is great, man, what a great deal. I know this is awesome. And you take it home and you put it in your backyard in the blazing Mediterranean sun, all of a sudden your, your vase or whatever starts to melt and starts falling apart. So you take it back and say, man, I've been ripped off. This isn't right. I want one without wax. I want one sincere. So then the next time you go shopping for pottery, you would take it outside the store, hold it up to the sunlight, then you would be able to detect the wax. That's where the phrase uh, tested by sunlight comes from. So Paul is saying our love should be pure. It should be sincere. There shouldn't be any impure motives behind it. Listen, that happens. Sometimes within our love, we can have mixed motivations. It's not pure. It's not sincere. We, we have ulterior motives. Oh, I love you. There's a story I read of a man who phoned a church up and asked to speak to the head hog, meaning the pastor, 
The secretary appalled by that answered by saying, Sir, I'm sorry, we do not refer to our pastor as the head hog. The man replied, Well, I just inherited a large amount of money and wanted to donate $10,000 to the church. The secretary then said, Hold on a minute, I'll go get the big pig. See, sometimes we really pour on the love. We want somebody to do something for us or give us something. That's not real love. That's not agape love. You know, look at it this way. We might want to give somebody a hug, but it's just not for the right reasons. Oh, sister, you look like you really need a big hug today. Let me give you a hug when you really just wanted some physical closeness that you haven't experienced in a long time. We have to be careful of our motives. We have to be sincere. Hypocrisy will stop the flow of real love. In fact, Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Paul says that. Let love be without hypocrisy. That's the same thing here. Sincere. Let it be pure. Now, if I were to ask you to name an apostle whose love was impure, who would you think of right away? Judas. Absolutely right. See, there was a time, if you recall, when they were at Bethany together and this woman poured this expensive ointment on Jesus, 300 denarii, a year's wages worth, very expensive, and Judas, he's acting all spiritual. Oh, that ointment could have been sold and the money could have been given to the poor. Oh, Mr. Spiritual, you know, so much love for the poor. And actually, you know, he's a hypocrite because, you know, the Bible says he took care of the money back and he was stealing money from it. Sounded so good. So sincere, but it was not sincere. There was wax in it. He had mixed motives. He was in it for the money. Then look at the time he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Then went ahead and what? He betrayed him with a kiss. A sign of affection, love, friendship, intimacy. But that love was, was wax. It wasn't authentic. Listen, we as believers, we need to be willing to hold up our lives to the light of God's word. And we need to be transparent in our character. And when we do that, God is able to deal with those cracks and those flaws in our own lives to show us, hey, what needs to be fixed. There's no perfect pieces in the church or in the world. We all have cracks and flaws. We know that. We're all cracked pots, you know, but God wants to fix those in his own way. But unfortunately, with many believers, we want to conceal and cover up those cracks and those flaws and and pretend to be something that that we're not, rather than allowing God to do that work in our lives. Now think about it. Have you ever been to a wax museum before? They're they're pretty pricey, so we don't go all the time. But I remember when we first moved here, we took the kids down to Branson. And, uh, you know, they have all the movie stars and and, and celebrities there. And it's kind of eerie because you're looking at them and go, okay, they really kind of look like them. And and uh, I remember one time years ago, probably the first wax museum I went to, Lisa and I went to, I don't know if you remember this, uh, we are, it's in Hollywood, California, and we're walking through it and they have these Keystone cops and they're standing there, a couple of them, well, one of them jumps out at us, hey, you know, bam, no, I, I didn't do that, but felt like it, but that's okay for wax museums, but that's not okay for true believers. See, he blended in. I didn't see him. I didn't notice him. Again, that's okay for wax museums and not for two believers because we're called by God to live upright and sincere lives. And we can plug the cracks with wax and we can go to church and we can pretend that everything's okay, but then the church just becomes, what, a wax museum. What's the other option? And turn up the heat in the wax museum. Turn up the heat. Allow God's word to melt away all that insincerity. Get into the light, into the light of God's word and let him repair the flaws his way. Let me ask you this morning, 
as a believer, could God lay a sign on your life that says sincere, tested by the light? It doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it does mean that we're not trying to live a life of someone who we're really not. Now, as we open up our lives to the Lord and allow His light to shine on our life, then we experience God's love towards us. And so, number one, Paul prayed for plentiful love. Number two, Paul prayed for perceptive love. Number three, Paul prays for pure love. And then finally, number four, four, <laughs> too many P's and R's. Number four, Paul prays for a purposeful love. Say that real fast five times. Look at verse 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, when you read a verse like that, you go, okay, that sounds like some of those Bible phrases that make no sense to me whatsoever. What is this saying? Simply this. This kind of love that I've described, this overflowing, beautiful, abundant love that's kept under restraint through knowledge and discernment and by purity is the kind of expression that when you do it, it is going to glorify God. It'll bring glory to God. That's the purpose of all the love that we have, all the love that we share. It's what it's to glorify God. The purpose of your love in your marriage is to glorify God. The purpose of your love between you and your best friend is to glorify God. The purpose of you and, 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 and love between you and your son, your daughter, your parents, your associates is to glorify God. The purpose of all love is to bring glory to God. Now, how do we know this? God's Word tells us so. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So then the purpose of all of our life is to glorify God. Therefore, the purpose of all of our love, so too, is to glorify God. So the ultimate test then, to see if something is sincere, if I truly am showing an expression of God's love to someone, then it's going to be glorifying God. It's not going to be lifting me up. It's not going to be lifting you up. It's not going to be pointing to you. It's going to be pointing to Jesus Christ, lifting him up. If it does, then no one in your life is going to be lacking love. No one. And they will say of you, my, how they love one another. Because they'll see it. They'll see it in your life. And they'll say, my, how they love Jesus. And this brings us to our communion table this morning. Jesus put it this way in John fifteen thirteen: Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. The ultimate act of love. Sacrificial love was what Jesus Christ has done for us upon that cross, taking all of our sin upon himself so that we can be made right. We can be forgiven. That's love. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let me say this this morning. If you're here and you've never experienced God's love, the forgiveness of your sin, I invite you to take that step of faith today and, and commit your life to Jesus Christ before we enter into communion. You see... If you're living apart from God, and by that I mean if, you, if you're not asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior and Lord and forgive you of your sin, your life is pointless. It's empty. Without God, your life is meaningless. But listen to this. When you commit your life to Jesus Christ, He can take your mistakes and your sins and He can turn them around and even use them for your glory. Maybe this morning you've fallen away and you want to experience that love of God once again in your life. I invite you to rededicate your life to the Lord this morning. Maybe you're here and you've made a mess of your life. You've blundered big time. You've sinned. You've got a lot of chips and blemishes. You've not loved the way God has called you to love. 
I love the passage found in Isaiah 61, verse 3 and 4, where it tells us God will give beauty for ashes, ashes, joy instead of mourning, praise instead of despair, for the Lord has planted them like strong and graceful oaks for his own glory. He will rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing cities long ago destroyed. They will be revived, those who have been empty for many generations. Did you catch what that said? You come in with all of your burdens, all of your cares, all of your failings, all of your problems, all of your, your sin, and he will exchange them and give you instead joy of mourning, instead of mourning joy and beauty for ashes. Beauty for ashes. Why? Because he loves us so, so much. That's his agape love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can enter into communion. Lord, because the display of your love is so strong as we look back to the cross and see what you've done for us. By going to the cross, dying for our sins, but even more so rising again from the dead. Lord, we recognize through the cross and resurrection we have complete forgiveness of our sin, victory over death. Lord, every sin we've ever done has been nailed to that cross. And to prove that we've been forgiven, you've risen from the dead. We thank you for that. We thank you for this time of communion, Lord, where we can look back. And Father, I pray, if there's anyone here that needs to make a first-time commitment to you, take a step of faith in putting their, their faith and trust in you, that they would do so this morning. Maybe they need to rededicate their lives and in their hearts. They would do so at this time. Maybe there's some things in our hearts and our lives that we've looked at at love. We realize that we're not loving as we should our spouse, our husband, our wife, our kids. We're not loving our neighbors. Maybe we're not loving someone in the church as we should. And there's some bitterness, some things in there that shouldn't be there. Lord, we want to bring them to the cross, confess it as sin, and find that cleansing and the forgiveness that you offer to us. So bless this time we pray of communion. We give it to you, Lord. We praise you for who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.